Take your Bibles and uh, open up to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 this morning. And this is where we're going to spend a majority of our time today. And uh, for those of you who might just be joining us in the middle of this series of talks, we're going through um, each point of our statement of faith as a church. And the reason for this is because it's something that we ascribe to or we say we we hold to these things, and often we don't talk about that, and yet these aren't just some made-up rules or regulations that we've somehow come up with and said this is what uh, we're corporately going to follow. Rather, this is as Scripture is read and God's Word is understood, this is what God's Word says in summary about who we should be as the church. Okay, so anytime you read our statement of faith and you see that, that those words we believe, uh, it's not something that just we believe is out there and we've made up and therefore recorded this. This is we uh, we uh, a more accurate statement would be we understand the Bible to say this. And so we've been walking through each step of this. And today specifically, I'm going to put this up here so you can see it. Um, we're going to be focusing on the Holy Spirit. And um, this is, is, isn't it interesting that amongst everything that we talk about, oftentimes this is the thing that we talk about the least. And it's just kind of this abstract concept out there. or may, We understand it and maybe we even use the terminology, but in all reality, to, to, for us to really spend time digging into this and understanding, this is who... The Holy Spirit is, this is why it's important to us, this is what that looks like, this is crucial for us in our understanding of this. And their statement simply says this, we believe that the Holy Spirit, in all that he does, glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He convicts the world of its guilt, he regenerates sinners, and in him they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. He also indwells, illuminates, guides, equips, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. Okay? Now again, I'll preface this and say, this is something that in the midst of all of this, these are all principles that we're going to see in Scripture. Okay? So this is not, this is not my words. Everyone say, not his words. It's God's word. Say God's word. Okay? That's most important for us to understand in the midst of this. And um, <clears throat> it's kind of an introduction thought to this. How many of you have ever just thought to yourself or wished kind of personally, man, I wish Jesus was just here right now. How, how many of you, all right, realistically, I think every one of us should have that yearning. Honestly, when we have hard questions or things come up and we're going, man, if Jesus was just here, I feel like this would be so much easier than it is. Certainly many of us have faced situations or doubts or questions where we may have even spoken the words, if only Jesus were here, if only I could ask him directly, if only I had his help. Now, for a minute, I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes, okay? These 12 guys who Jesus personally chose to follow after him, who he invested in and poured into over approximately three and a half years of earthly ministry, and all of a sudden, he's not here. Now you talk about a group of guys who no doubt, we have to imagine, would have at times said, Man, 
Remember when Jesus was here and we could just ask him anything? And if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you, you understand they really did kind of ask him everything. And a lot of times we read what they ask and we kind of laugh because we go, they just didn't get it. And then I always turn that back and think to myself, yeah, we just don't get it. Right? If only Jesus were here. Now, something we're going to understand today is that the answer to that desire is a lot closer than maybe we anticipated or even thought. And maybe we just missed it. And so we're going to be in John chapter 16 today. And to kind of preface this so that we don't just jump in and not know really what's going on. The passage in John chapter 16 is a part of a longer context of scripture, realistically from about chapter 13 to chapter 17 in John, that's referred to as the upper room discourse. And the upper room discourse, many might ask, well, why is it called that? And the reality is it's called that because uh, Jesus met with his disciples for what we commonly know as the last supper in the upper room. And in this time, Jesus shares this discourse of thought with his disciples. Now, we know if we've, from reading through the, the rest of the story that it's not long after this that Jesus leaves. And they go together and Jesus is ultimately arrested and tried and crucified. Now, the disciples sitting around having this meal, we're going to see in a second, they just... There's, there's kind of a misunderstanding here, seeming not grasping at this, okay? And we might ask the question, well, why is that? Well, for some reason, the disciples had it in their mind. Jesus was going to rule. He physically rule in their time. He was going to conquer this. He was the man. And nothing could stop him. They were very convinced of that. And it's funny, as you read through specifically the book of John, you see multiple instances where Jesus himself said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to be captured. I'm going to be crucified. And I find it so interesting every time I read through that and I see those and I go, man, he told them. He, he straight up told them they, they had no excuse not to grasp the depth of this. And yet... They were still completely baffled when Jesus was captured and tried and crucified. And I want to encourage you this morning by that very notion because the reality is you and I fit into the same camp, don't we? That we really ultimately have no excuse, okay? And even beyond what the disciples had, we hold in our hands, think about, think about that for a minute. We, we hold in our hands the living, active Word of God. The, the very words of Jesus Himself, the very stories throughout the Old Testament, we, we have all of it right here. But I fear, and, and I include myself in this, so often this just becomes something we do and something that just kind of sits just like any other book. And we go, yeah, it's a, it's a good thing to reference. Or, yeah, I, I'm going to turn back there. This, this has the potential to be life transforming. Not because it's simply the book itself, but because of 
what it says. And because of the one who authored it, okay, God himself, and we talked about that previously. And so we, we're in good company. But right before this, just to give you a preface, John, in John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and then he predicts that Judas is going to betray him. In John chapter 14, Jesus focuses on salvation, and specifically the unity between himself and the Father. And in John chapter 15, we have a passage that, is commonly referenced as the vine and the branches, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, my father's the vine dresser. And so we're all leading up to this, and he shifts to a focus here where, at the end of chapter 15, he says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. He's speaking to his disciples here, okay? So picture the context, picture everything that's been said up to this point. Picture the fact that right before Jesus has started saying where we're going to read today, Judas has got up and left the table. Because Jesus has said, one of you is going to betray me. The man who dips in this bowl with me is going to betray me. So Judas left. And so you can imagine what's going through the disciples' minds right now. Put yourself at that table and we're, we're, we're already set up for a very kind of awkward family meal. Have you ever had one of those? Where this just isn't going the way I planned that it would. I mean, how many of you have experienced that? Some of you would have some really good stories about that. And this is kind of what's happening. Okay? And I, I think we often portray the, the upper room and the Last Supper as this real serious, somber kind of... These were... These were I mean, we're talking about fishermen and tax collectors and... You, you put the character in there. You've got, you've got Thomas in there. And Thomas, I mean, the whole time, I'm imagining he's going, oh, I don't know about this, guys. I mean, come on. Okay? Thomas was known to be a doubter. And we see that later on after Jesus is crucified. And he says, I won't believe it until I see the holes in his hands. And so th- this would have been an interesting, an interesting place to be right now. But Jesus starts into this. We're going to pick up actually right before chapter 16 in chapter 15, verse 26. So just follow along with me. It says, and understand this is Jesus speaking here. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me and you also will, will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these things to you that when the, their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now I'm going to pause there for a second. And the reality of this is the main idea of our text this morning 
That is the main point that if you get nothing else out of this morning, I want you to understand this. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus in all that he does. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus in all that he does. Now, understand here that Jesus is promising a helper. And depending on your translation, it might say counselor. It might say helper. It's all the same word. Realistically, the word is uh, parakletos. And what that means is it, it refers to one who comes alongside another to act on his behalf. It refers to a person and not a thing. One providing personal services. A parakletos helps, guides, advises, and encourages. Now, the question that we might ask when we approach and Jesus says, hey, I'm going to send the helper to you is, why do they need a helper? Why do they need help? Everyone ask that question. Why do they need help? Let's look at verse 8 and continue reading this. And when he comes, he referring to the helper here, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now there's a lot jam-packed into just a few little verses there, but I'm going to summarize it for you. Specifically, the reason that the disciples and we ourselves are included in that need a helper is first off because mankind cannot convict the world concerning sin. Now understand this. Mankind cannot convict the world concerning sin. Now what I want you to understand is that there is a difference between identifying sin and convicting someone of sin. And what I mean by that is throughout Scripture we see God very emphatically point out to his followers, hey, you should know the difference between that which is sinful and that which is righteous. And it's laid out here for you, so you should be able to identify that. But there's one job in that that we often like to take upon ourselves, and that is the job of convicting other people. And that's what happens when you who are sitting here on a Sunday morning and I and someone, whoever's opening the Bible with you, um, says something and you jab them in the side. Hey, are you listening? Hey, did you hear that? Or maybe you're just, hey, wake up. Okay. But the reality is, no matter how much you poke and prod and push... And shout or yell, you yourself cannot convict someone of their own sin. You can't do it. You can share everything till you're blue in the face. But it is only the work of God's Spirit that will actually move someone to a place where they recognize and say, this isn't right. This is sinful for me to do this. And... To illustrate that even further, many of us have encountered people before who believe something that you and I might believe to be completely immoral, and they say, I don't see what's wrong with this. 
And that's not them just being facetious. That's they're honestly saying, I don't I don't understand why you have a problem with this. And we ask the question, well, why is that? Well, it's because I I understand God's word. Praise God that he's allowed me to read that with an understanding and a desire to live that out. But I myself, in and of my own strength, mankind, you and me, are powerless to convict someone of their own sin. Now, that has really strong implications for those of us who believe that Jesus commissioned us to go and make disciples. Because we like results. So we like the cookie cutter mentality of I'm X, Y, and Z, and you move from here to here, and it's measurable and done. But understand, church, that there is much of what we believe and much of what we should be longing for that requires us to depend upon God's Spirit, not ourselves. And that includes salvation. That's what we talked about last week. We can't do that ourselves. It's a gift of God through Christ. It's only by God that we can that we can be saved. It includes conviction of ourselves and other people. Okay? Now, secondly, mankind cannot convict the world concerning righteousness. Now, many people read this passage in here and we see specifically in verses 8 through 11 in John 16, the helper will come to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those are our three categories, okay? And we often lump sin and righteousness into the same category. But the reality is, I have encountered people before who recognize their sin but do nothing about it. And the difference is, there is not only a conviction relating to sin, but there, sh- there should be a conviction relating specifically to that which is righteous. Now, what's really interesting about this is this bridges the gap here where Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going to go, but when I go, I'm going to send a helper for you. And the reality was, this was directly correlating to Christ's physical presence in his disciples' lives. And some may ask, well, why wasn't the Holy Spirit needed in the lives of individual followers of Christ before this time? And it's because Jesus himself was present on earth And now Jesus has come and he's taught and he's revealed that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's the only way. In John 14, we understand that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But all this time, Jesus has been there. He's been present. And so now, there's this shift to where the person of Jesus is the standard of righteousness. Only Jesus set the standard for perfect righteousness. Therefore, true righteous conviction is only found when looking at the person of Jesus. This should ultimately lead us to maturity. Everyone say maturity. Okay? My personal growth... Listen to this, church. My personal growth doesn't stop with simply recognizing sin. 
My personal growth doesn't stop simply by recognizing my sin. My children can often recognize and articulate their sin. Does that mean they are mature? No, definitely not. Everyone say no. Okay? You are often able to recognize your sin. Does that mean you are mature? Oh, we, we, you, you're doubting this. We're going to try that again. Does this mean that you are mature? Okay, that's an emphatic no, and I am with you. I have a long way to go. But how do I know I have a long way to go? It's because I, have, I fix my eyes on Jesus and I go, I am very short. I have fallen very short of this. But it's only the work of God's Spirit that could give me eyes to see and fix, fixate on Jesus so much so that I go, man, I need to grow. I've got a distance that I need to move. I need to move beyond where I'm at today. And for some of us, we eagerly accept the conviction of the Spirit when it comes to sin. And we go, I'm a sinner. I need salvation. Amen. Yes, you do. But the follow-up to that is, how am I doing in comparison to who Jesus is? And that takes a work of the Spirit in our lives to accomplish that. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus in all that he does. Thirdly, mankind cannot judge slash defeat the ruler of this world. Now, to emphasize this, I want us to read a a section of scripture here out of Romans chapter 8. And we're going to read this all together. It's going to be up on the screen. And so, I just want you to read along with me and, and, and listen to what these words that you're speaking actually are communicating, okay? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man. Here's the thing I want you to understand. It is not your job to defeat Satan, the ruler of this world. Jesus already did that. He did that when he rose again from death. 
it is your job, our job, to understand that in Christ, by His Spirit, Satan cannot stand. But it is not of our own power. It has to be the Helper who is, goes with us. Now, the Spirit of God does all of this, so what does the work of the Spirit look like? Read with me. I'm going to read the rest of this, starting in verse 12 of John 16. It says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, here's three things I want you to understand based on this about the Spirit's work. First off, the Spirit's work is personal. It's personal in the sense that The Spirit Himself can be grieved. Ephesians 4 says that. He acts with volition. 1 Corinthians 12 says that. He has affections. Acts 15 says that. This Counselor, the Holy Spirit, is not an impersonal force, but a person. A being. Now understand this as well. The Spirit's work is personal in the sense of the person individually. That is, in the life of the unbeliever, the only work the Spirit does is for conviction of sin. You grasp that? Because there's no moving beyond that until there's a recognition of sin. There's no moving to maturity apart from the Spirit's working to convict an unbeliever of their sin. Someone who's not a follower of Christ. The work of the Spirit, this this has had me thinking all week. The work of the Spirit is not some abstract force that simply hovers over the pews and around, and we have to somehow activate it. The Spirit of God, what Jesus promises to His disciples, the very promise to you, is the reality that if you're a follower of Christ, the Spirit of God, Romans 8, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, dwells within you. That means that wherever you go as a follower of Christ, the Spirit of God goes with you. Now, we don't live like that. I don't live like that many, many times. We live like we have to control ourselves. We're like, we have to do the saving. We have to do the convicting. We have to challenge all these things. And yet, this is where Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11 says, come to me, all who are burdened, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. It's because you're not depending upon yourself in the midst of this. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of this of the body, though many are one body, everyone say one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, everyone say one, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Everyone say one. He's personal in his work. He's personal in his gifting. And then he's personal in his filling. 
Now, just to touch on that briefly in the time that we have. Baptism of the Holy Spirit happens when we come to faith in Christ. And we're all united under one spirit. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. But the filling of the spirit happens many times throughout scripture. It's not a one time thing. In other words, God's spirit not only indwells the follower of Christ to empower us over sin. To convict us of righteousness. To help us as we yearn to encounter an enemy that is against us. But then fills individually to empower individuals for certain circumstances. And we see that throughout the book of Acts that that's happening. It's the same spirit that dwells in us today, okay? The spirit's work is personal, too. The spirit's work is true. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Everyone say truth. Chapter 15, verse 26, back when we read that, it said, I will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proclaim, proceeds from the father. That is, the Spirit's not some deceiver. The Spirit is true. And thirdly, this is our main idea, the Spirit's work is to glorify who? Jesus. Everyone say Jesus. Now, I want to move us into kind of an application in this. Because there's a lot here. And many of you, if you're like me, you, you're you're a visual learner. How many of you are visual learners? You remember? Yeah, okay. Good. So am I. So the question we have to ask is, why do I need a helper? Why do I need a helper? And the reality is, I'm incapable of truly glorifying Jesus in my own power. Okay? Now, to illustrate this, I'm borrowing an illustration from another pastor. But I love this. So, we have a glove. A glove, okay? And if I pull out said glove, set it here. And I say, glove, grab that Bible. Come on. I mean, it's right there. It's right next to it. You don't have to go far. Just grab the Bible. It's not going to do anything. But wait, maybe it just needs some, some encouragement. Come on, glove. You can do it. You got this. Or wait, maybe we just need to be a little more intentional with it, okay? We, it needs some discipleship. So here's what you do. You're going you're gonna to put your finger here and put it here, and then you just pick it up. You just lift. Just, that's all you do. I'll, show, I'll, I'll model it like this. Wrap, lift. Just disciple, nothing. Oh, but wait. He's all by himself. He needs community. He needs some community. So we've got a diverse group of uh, gloves here. Maybe he just needs some, some more community of help. We're going to surround him with others who can, they can do that together, right? Now, at this point, it should be really obvious. Obviously, the gloves are not going to do anything. Why is that? Well, because in order for this glove to act in any way, it needs to be filled with a source outside of itself. And then through the glove, whatever that source is, does the work. Now, the simplicity of that illustration, in reality, in practice, church, God desires to use you to impact this world. And He's given you not only all the tools, but 
Jesus himself promised his spirit that would equip you with everything that you need to do the work so that Jesus is the one doing the work through you. Not you by yourself somehow over here and some solution is making this to the side. It has to be the work of the Spirit in you. The work of God's Spirit. Now, lastly in application, the question I probably get the most is, how can I know what the Spirit is moving me to do? How can I know? And there's two answers to that question. I'm going to actually answer it with two questions that you can ask yourself. So note these down. First one. Is it written in his word? Is it written in, in, in the Bible? Can you see it in scripture? And secondly, will it ultimately point people to and glorify the name of Jesus? If the answer to both of those questions is yes, I would highly recommend that you do whatever it is that you feel led to do. If you're questionable on these... I would highly encourage you to spend some time in prayer, open God's word, seek out godly counsel to come alongside you and say, is this what, is this a movement of God or is this just a voice in my head? Because we can get those confused. And so I challenge you church, I challenge you, discipline yourself in the study of God's word, but ask yourself these questions. When you feel like God is moving you to do something, Back it up with a foundation that is secure. Allow God's Spirit to work in and through you. Understand that the work of the Spirit is not abstract, it's personal, it's intentional, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. But more than that, understand that the Spirit's work will ultimately glorify who? Jesus. Not you, not this place, not this town, not this country. Jesus, and only Jesus. The worship team is going to come up, and we're going to pray together. Would you stand with me? Father, this is challenging for us because it seems so abstract oftentimes, and yet, Lord, this is so crucial to the entirety of the, the mission that you've given us as a church Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger, a yearning for the Spirit's work in our lives. That we would recognize that we don't have to somehow call that into being. But Lord, that if we're in Christ, you've given us everything we need to walk in the Spirit. And Galatians tells us that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And Lord, may we seek to do that and do that well. Lord, most of all. In everything we do, Lord, may it glorify you. That we would allow your spirit to move, understanding that your spirit's work, as you said to your disciples, is to glorify yourself. It's to glorify the name of Jesus. And so we give you thanks that you've allowed us to to serve you, to, to participate in the mission and the work that you're doing. Lord, may we be faithful to that. And may you grow us to maturity to be more and more like Jesus every single day. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.